So if you're joining us for the first time uh, this summer, what we are doing is we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we are uh, looking, calling this sermon series the, the Cross and the Crown. And the, the reason for this is that Mark's gospel is really divided into two parts. And the first part, he, Mark is asking the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And the, the answer to that question is culminated in, in Peter's confession where he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so that's really part one, where we see that Jesus is God's anointed king. But then part two really fleshes out what type of king Jesus is. And he is a king who is going to the cross. He is a king who is going to suffer. And so today we're looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through uh, 11. And this, is, this text is called the triumphal entry, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and it, the details the, the events of this text take place exactly one week before he dies upon the cross. So this is really, as we step into this text, let, this is, we're going to be thinking about very specifically how Jesus is a different type of king for us. So let's look at Mark chapter, ele- Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were followed who followed were shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david hosanna in the highest and he entered jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to bethany with the 12 this is the word of the lord Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we ask that you be with us now as we look at your word. May we see what kind of king you are and and what that means for our life today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Growing up, I played a variety of different sports. When I was younger in elementary, I would play baseball or and flag football and as I grew up I would play basketball and soccer and when the seasons would wrap up we would always have a, a an award ceremony and during uh, but in preparation for the award ceremony coaches would pass out uh, th- like really three by five cards that were function- functioning as ballots and they told us to vote for the most valuable player or the most improved player or the best sportsman on the team and so forth and so on. And this is rather ironic because all these sports that I just mentioned are team sports. The t- as it's... We, 
in these sports, you are playing together, you are competing together, working together as you're trying to win uh, and complete the game, where you're trying to win the game. But it's, it's ironic because, like, there's no I in team. Like, these are team sports, yet we are voting for the most valuable player. Nonetheless, like, no one would vote it for me. I was not coordinated. I still am not coordinated. And I learned a valuable lesson from all these things. And, and the lesson that I learned is that if you're going to be valued, if you're going to be successful, then you have to be the best. That's the lesson I took home from these ballots. And that's at least how our world operates. That, in other words, that our world operates and functions that if you're going to be valued, then you need to be the best. If you're going to have any significance, then you need to be successful. And, in other words, the only way to be somebody is to be the best. And we see this competitive drive in sports. We see this competitive drive fleshed out when we were playing a board game like Monopoly. And we know that if you finish last, then you're in fact a loser or a nobody. That's the wisdom of our world. But let me ask this question to you. Where does that wisdom come from? Where does that competitive drive to be somebody come from? Well, here's how one of the most famous singers and musicians of the late 20th century put it. She says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've been and I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Those words were, were spoken in an interview by Madonna. And so, in other words, we are afraid of being ordinary. We are afraid of being boring. We are, we are afraid of being no one. That is where this drive of, to be significant comes from. That we are driven by a lie. That we are not loved. That we are driven by a, a lie. That we are not loved by who, for, we are not loved for who we are. And so... What this means for us functionally, practically, is that we need to finish first in order to be loved. That is how, that where this wisdom that to be somebody, you need, you need to be the best. And so the kings of this world will continue to say, you are not valuable. You are not important unless you're the best. That's the, the kings of the world. That's what the, our world says at us. And that's exhausting. That's exhausting. That's horrible. That's catastrophic for us to hear. Because the, the, what ends up happening is that we never stop performing. We never stop trying. We never stop competing. But the good news is that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus is different. We learn in the Gospel of Matthew, we see these words when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And we see how different Jesus is as he comes into Jerusalem here in this passage that we looked at. To, to help us understand the setting and the, the significance of this passage, it is, this, it is 
the Sunday before Jesus died upon the cross. He's coming into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the capital city. It's the center of the nation of Israel. And as Jesus is entering into the city, he sends his two disciples into the city and tells them to find a young colt, one that has never been ridden before, and to bring it to him. And that is no ordinary, no small thing. Because in the Old Testament, in the the Old Testament prophet, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, we find a prophecy that is unpacking and giving us a picture of, of God's anointed king, of the one who is to come. And this is a picture that all of Israel knew. And so when they would see this, they would know that God's anointed king has come. And so by sending these two disciples to go get this young colt, Jesus is, is connecting the dots back to that Old Testament prophecy, which says that God's anointed Messiah, God's anointed king, is going to ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. So when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, everyone's going to know that the Messiah is coming into uh, Jerusalem. So after years, after three years of teaching, after three years of healing, after three years of miracles and living with these disciples and speaking in parables and riddles and teaching, he is now saying, I am the king of the Jews. And that's what he's saying with all, with everything that's going on here. And here's a problem. And this is something that we've, I've said over the past few Sundays because every Israelite has a different understanding of what it means for, for Jesus to be God's anointed king. If you look at our text today, there's the crowd, there's the religious leaders, there's the disciples, there's others who are there. Like, for example, the crowd. The crowd is there. They're, they're waving branches. They're shouting out Hosanna. But the crowd is there. Some of them are, are there looking for another miracle. They're looking for Jesus to perform a great miracle where he's feeding 5,000 people or healing a, a cripple. They're there looking for a miracle like that. Then there are the religious leaders who are, feel, who are overcome with really anxiety and insecurity because they're feeling the, their popularity being lost to Jesus. So there's the religious leaders. But then you also have the zealots. And we see the zealots come up at the end of the text when we, we see something that's hinted for us. In verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. The zealots are thinking that here's the Messiah who's going to restore Israel to its former glory that occurred under King David. That here's the Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel's might and majesty again. And so then there's the disciples who are coming to terms with the with the significance of who Jesus is. In fact, this, the, entire, the entire significance of this passage of Jesus wa- riding into Jerusalem on the colt is actually completely lost on them. They are not connecting the dots. We know this from John, from John's gospel, where we're told that the disciples did not connect the dots until after Jesus died. And so, so that. 
So it's not clear. There's a problem. The, the people, the crowd, the religious leaders, the disciples, they do not understand the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on, the cult, on this colt. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? Don't, because we want Jesus to be our king on our own terms. We want Jesus to be our therapist. We want Jesus to be our religious teacher. We want Jesus to really uh, to validate our culture and our, our morality. We want Jesus to be our culture warrior. We, do, we want Jesus to be our king on our terms. But the point of this passage is that Jesus is a different type of king. That Jesus, yes, is our king, but we learn something about the type of king that Jesus is. Jesus is riding into the city on a donkey. And so, yes, people know that Jesus is the Messiah, but there are hints that his kingship is different. It's not what they expected. So one very small hint is the fact that he is riding on a donkey. He is riding on this, this creature that is bred for carrying uh, cargo. This is not a, a creature that is meant to, to take a king into battle. This is not a war horse. Like, so even like by contrast, like when um, you would think about like uh, generals, when they would come back to Rome and they'd be in victory, there'd be this massive uh, triumph, this massive parade that's going on, and the king's riding in a, char- in a chariot. Or the general's riding in a chariot. That's not what's going on for Jesus. Jesus is riding on a donkey. But it's not just any donkey. It's a donkey that's never been ridden before. And I'm not sure if you've seen this video that's been like floating around social media. But the video occurs over in the Middle East. And there are grown men who are attempting to ride this donkey. And this donkey is like really stumbling from carrying this weight of an adult man. And so, like, from the simple point of that video, it's that that it would be an awkward sight to see that this is not really practical, yet Jesus is riding into the city on this colt, and that tells us something. It tells us that Jesus' way is a way of of humility. Because this is something that we see throughout his entire life, that Jesus is, is riding on this donkey, and this donkey is a symbol of meekness and humility. And so what this means for Jesus is that Jesus is our humble king. And, the, and we learn also that he is actually exalted. He finds um, achievements and he, success through humility. The reason why Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords is because he has been humiliated. That he has undergone great humiliation. And so this is actually something that we see throughout Jesus' whole life. When God the Son became man, he became fully man. And so just think about that. Jesus was a baby. And like like as a, a father to a two-and-a-half-year-old who is like just teaching his, his, his son how to use the restroom, like it's, it's humiliating in a sense. Like here's the, cre- the creator of the world who's becoming the creature, and he is being cared for by parents. 
It's the creator of the universe, but he is a living, breathing baby. And then he, as he, Jesus grows up, he, uh, when you consider the rest of his life, as he grows up, just consider this, that his family is poor. He is a political refugee. We never see him at his family's home. And instead, when we see Jesus eating a meal, he is always at someone else's house. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by one of his closest friends. He was falsely accused. He faced a rigged trial. He died a criminal's death. And his sole possession, the, thing that we, the only thing that we see Jesus having when he died is that his sole possession was, was gambled over. And when he was buried, he was buried in someone else's tomb. Jesus, this is the creator of the universe. And I just described something for you. I described his life. And this is why theologians call the life of Christ the humiliation of God the Son. And so the entire life of Jesus is marked by humility. And it's his humility that brings him success. It's his humility that is the reason why he is exalted over all things. So why? why how does humility lead to exaltation? And for Jesus, in a word, it's the obedience. There's this one uh, scholar, her name's Ju- Julie Canlis, and she writes this, she wrote this th- short book called The Theology of the Ordinary. And she does a wonderful job showing just how important Jesus' ordinary life is to our life with God today. And so here's one quote, and it's lengthy. But this is what she writes. The power of the cross comes from the 33 years Jesus lived as human, fully surrendered to the Father. He was fully human in every way that we are, just without sin. Jesus assumed every aspect of our diseased humanity in order to infiltrate it, heal our brokenness, and remove our guilt by uniting us with God once again. He did this as an ordinary youth that is walking the back roads of Palestine at three miles per hour. The cross was Jesus' final act in a life of loving obedience to the Father. It's at the cross that he surrendered to the most horrifying of human experiences, death, in order to transform it. The point of Jesus' obedience is not that it made him fit for sacrifice, but that only through his obedience could our unobedience be healed. His life of obedience recreated us step by step. In Jesus, we have our first glimpse of what it means to be truly human. So it, what this means to pull that, pull the one central big idea out of there is that what this means is that Jesus, in his humiliation, in his suffering, he was obeying God, and it's in that his obedience that we are healed. It's in the fact that he suffered and died upon the cross that we can find healing. In fact, perhaps even bring this, even to make this even more clear, to use a line from a prayer of confession where we read this, that our disobedience is hidden in his submission, that our arrogance is hidden in his humility, that our sin is hidden in his blood. 
That is what Jesus did for us. That is what Jesus did for us as he became man, that as he endured the, the misery of sin in this life, he faced extraordinary humiliation. And that's what Jesus models for us. Our king models humility for us through his own obedience to God. And he calls us to follow him as well by obeying his word. In the Old Testament, God gives Israel the the law. And as God gives them the law, he rescues them from Egypt. He rescues them from their old way of life. And he shows them a new way of living. God gives his law, God gives his people a law that governs just relationships between people. He gives them a law that preserves rights for women, for slaves and strangers. He creates, he gives them this law that creates respect for the land. In other words, what, what we tend to think of as restrictive God's law completely does the opposite. God's law does not limit freedom. God's law is actually set, intended to set us free from our sin so that we can actually thrive and flourish. That's what God's way is all about. And that's the way that God is calling us into. But, the, but if we're going to live this type of life that God invites us into, If we're going to have Jesus as our king, the very first thing that we need to do is humbly come to him. We need to admit that we are sinners who who have a great need of a savior and rescuer. Jesus is a different kind of king. And so as we follow him, we're going to be following a king who actually gives us life. He is a king who gives us love. And he wants us to thrive and flourish in in our life. But there's one last question, really, that is unanswered. And the question is, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus come to be humiliated? (coughs) Why did Jesus come to be humiliated? The answer is because he loves you. Jesus loves you. He values you above himself. And so Paul uses this language in Philippians 2 that Jesus set aside his own interests and pursued yours instead. Jesus does not demand perfection from us. His love for you is not dependent on your own hurried and restless obedience. He knows that you wear masks. He knows that you pretend. And he sees through them all. He sees through all your pretense. He sees through all your masks. And he simply delights in you for being you. And that's the kind of Jesus is. He is a different kind of king, and he loves you. And so after Jesus comes into the temple, excuse me, after Jesus comes into the city, he goes to the temple. And this temple is no longer a place of worship and reconciliation with God. There's actually a business going on. There's money changers happening. And like Mark doesn't bring this up, but another gospel account does. But we see people selling animals. We see bankers changing money. And Jesus is furious because he sees this place that has been about worship and reconciliation with God. And he's furious because it has instead become about a business. 
the religious climate of Jesus' day viewed life with God as a transaction where it's based upon moral performance, but that's not what life with God is about. Jesus came to make us right with God, and that's all we need. The only thing that we need to be right with God is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the way of Jesus. That is what makes Christianity different from any other religion as well. Gautama Buddha, the religious teacher who gave birth to Buddhism, uttered these is said, to say, is said to have said these last words as he died. Strive without ceasing. Those, that's what, those are what his last words are said to be. But Jesus, on the other hand, his last words were very different. He said, it is finished. All we need for life with God is Jesus Christ. Jesus' work is finished with his death. He did not die as a frustrated failure. His death was the revolution, and he endured all the, the full judgment of God for us. And it's because of everything that Jesus has done, we have life with God, and he is all that we ever need. Let's pray.